Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And the topic we tackle today is so important for us as ministry leaders and also for the people God has called us to lead. My guest is John Mark Comer, teaching and vision pastor of Bridgewater Church in Portland, Oregon. A graduate of Western Seminary, John Mark is currently in the midst of doctoral studies at Fuller Seminary and the Dallas Willard Center. He's the author of several best-selling books, including his latest, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. In this episode, John Mark and I talk about the greatest enemy of spiritual life today. John Mark shares what he has experienced and learned about the temptation of busyness for pastors and ministry leaders. We discuss the challenge between the urgency of mission and ministry and the rest and solitude that Jesus models. John Mark shares several real-world examples of how to create both personal practices and a church culture that leads to healthier, unhurried lives that reflect the way of Jesus. So please, won't you join me in this encouraging conversation with John Mark Comer. John Mark, so excited to have you with us today. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be along. Awesome. You, in your most recent book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, you tell a little story in the beginning about John Ortberg, a pastor that, that many of us know. And, yeah. um, and the story kind of comes from a book that he wrote called Soul Keeping, which, side note, an absolutely amazing book, right? So, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, worth, well worth your time. It's kind of like my book, but better. <laughs> it's it is fantastic book, right? So he was, you know, he was kind of mentored by Dallas Willard, whom was an incredible man of God and and had a huge influence on my own life, and and I know many many others, probably many who are listening today. And and one of the things that Dallas said to to John, and that you noted in, in your book, Dallas said, "Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day." But then you, John Mark, you know, you kind of reflected on that. And said, you know what, if I was asked, you know, what is the greatest enemy of spiritual life for me? Um, and you said you, you, you might say something like modernity or postmodernity or liberal theology, um, the popularization of the prosperity gospel, redefinition of sexuality and marriage, um, the erasure of gender, internet porn, millions of questions people have about violence in the Old Testament, um, the fall of celebrity pastors, or maybe Donald Trump. Um, so let me ask you, John Mark, uh, do you, um, as you're as you're sitting here today, do you um, yourself really believe that hurry is a greater enemy than all of these other things that we're bombarded with, um, you know, in, in kind of the ministry world? Yeah, I think I've come to that conviction. You know, when the first time that I came across that story and that line, you know, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, which which I thought was really surprising. I mean, especially, I mean, Willard was a philosopher, University of Southern California. His academic work, for which he's less known by people like us, was around phenomenology and how do we know what is real and can you know things like God? Can you know things like good, evil? Can you know things like ethics or morality? And so he was, I mean, just up to his eyeballs in all things secularism, post-modernity, Marxism, you know, post-Christian culture. He was like – he was living and breathing in that academic space. Mm -hmm. And so that he – the fact that he named hurry 
as and he wasn't like a millennial with an iPhone, you know. Right, right. He was, he was elderly, never had a smartphone, and the fact that he named hurry as what he saw as the greatest threat to spiritual life in our day that that really like was surprising to me. And when I first came across that story, I kind of had equal and opposite reactions. You know, my mind said, in all honesty, that's ridiculous. Hurry, like that's the main problem. Come on. Right. But then at my gut, I had like this opposite reaction where it was the best analogy I can think of is like, um, have you ever used a tuning fork, like for a piano or guitar or something like that? And in a tuning fork, you know, so music is fascinating. Like something like middle C is it's not, it wasn't created by people. It was created by God. So, you know, the notes of creation are literally woven into the fabric of create of the universe itself of reality. There are eight notes, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're, they're not more or less, you know, you can split them in half like in India, but it's still the same eight (laughs) notes, you know? And um, so there's there's something fascinating there. When you hit a tuning fork, literally your bones tremor as they come into contact with the reality of middle C at the center of the universe, you know? Mm-hmm. And it kind of had like this emotional, mental, spiritual, psychic kind of like tuning fork moment for me where it just I just felt in my soul, my gut, like a resonance with reality. And the longer I've sat with this thesis – both as a pastor, just experiential, and then just as an apprentice of Jesus, the more I have come around full circle to say with my mind as well now, yeah, I actually think that's the problem underneath or before so many, if not all, then at least so many of the other problems of our day. I was just rereading a few minutes ago Andrew Sullivan's article for the New York Times Magazine, I Used to Be Human Being. I'm not sure if you came across that Mm -hmm. when it came two years ago maybe which is all about the death of the Sabbath and the iPhone and the digital age. And he has this great line about how the reason that faith is increasingly rare isn't because you know science has somehow disproven the unprovenable, but it has just created the, what he calls the white noise of secular, secularism. And then he just has this line, he's like, if churches came to realize that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism but distraction – perhaps they would appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Mm. And, you know, I think that's saying the same thing in different language that so many, like, how can people even have a spiritual life at all? If you know, which is sentimental language, but if you define the spiritual life as our growing capacity to receive and then give love in relationship to God and other people, that demands time, space, and a capacity for attention. You have to be able to pay attention to God loving you, and then you have to pay attention to other people to love them. And hurry is just literally incompatible with that. If a hurried life is in, I, I think you can't live a spiritual life and a life of hurry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's um, that, that's so good, and and that kind of brings me to, to I think a very important point something to discuss in regard to those of us who are in ministry. Um, one of the things that you you contend is that pastors are some of the most hurried people in the world. And mm-hmm. when we look at the fact that hurry and love are incompatible, um, that presents a, uh, you know, a big, a big problem. Mass, yeah. Mass problem. Right. Why, why do you, why, why is it that pastors are some of the most hurried people in the world? What are your thoughts on that? Well, gosh, I mean, I I think, you know, obviously just similar to anybody who works in social work, if that be, you know, a caseworker for the government or a therapist, there's there's never an end to our job or our need, you know? Yeah. And so there's never a moment where it's like no pastor, no matter what size your church is or what role you have, nobody is ever like, cool, 
everybody that needs or wants something from me is all happy and I'm good. And my to-do list is all crossed off, right. you know, because it's about the growth and the nurturing of the soul. And that literally does not stop this side of resurrection. Mm-hmm. Some theologians would say it doesn't even stop after the resurrection. <laughs> so, you know, so you have one, you have this kind of nonstop need thing. Two, I think that there is a legitimate thing where the fallout of Woodstock and the sex revolution, um, which is conjoined with the secularism of our nation, has created um, a massive breakdown of the family, which has created a massive mental and emotional health crisis in our nation that mm-hmm. all sorts of people who work with people are are now dealing with the fallout of that. And so I think people's lives are less stable than they used to be. People are more transient, more lonely, more mentally unstable and unwell, more exhausted, more burned out, more struggling with doubt and you know the inability to experience God's presence. And so this, I think, exacerbates the need that people project onto a local church and onto a local pastor. And then, of course, in the digital age, that's now the boundaries between work and home life are are swallowed up. They're all gone. And then I think finally, you know, all of us know that there's, I think there's few jobs on the planet where it's easier to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. Mm. And you know what I mean? Because if we overwork, and take another meeting or do another night out or teach another Bible study or mentor another person or whatever it is on our, based on our role or add another service to our church or another site or whatever the thing is, even if it's fully rooted in ego, ambition, insecurity, attempting to run away from the pain of a, a marriage that's disappointment or a child that's way harder work and doesn't give us the kudos and thanks that our church does, the podcast does or whatever, even if our reason for doing it is is demonic or at least just totally off base still people will generally pat us on the back mm. and will give us often a raise and a, a compliment rather than a rebuke and of some form of j- discipline when's the last time you heard about church discipline for a leader who like added too many nights out right. or worked, worked too many hours you know i mean the 10 commandments the sabbath is the one commandment that pastors and christians brag about breaking right you know Nobody brags about like, I had four affairs this week, or I murdered somebody, or I lied nine (laughs) times. But people regularly brag, you know, it's been 13 days since I've had a day off. I did 400 emails yesterday. I was up at five in the morning. I worked a 17-hour day yesterday. We brag about it. And so I think in the pastorate, it's so easy in our job to do good things for lousy reasons. And those lousy reasons, be it ambition, ego, insecurity, fear, and inability to face the pain of reality or disappointment, inability to sit in the quiet with ourselves and God, whatever the reason is, those things drive, they're like an engine that drives us to a life of speed and hurry. And it's tragic because hurried pastors create hurried congregations Mm. and they create, you I think the main thing that a pastor does at a leadership level is create culture. And right. if you and you and for better or for worse, you create the culture that you live in in your body. And so if you live at a speed of hurry and you're not attentive and you can't sit in the quiet and you live with low grade anxiety or even agitation, that is the culture that you will create. Even if you fake it well on stage, still in the psycho spiritual dynamics of a local church, that's what will come out. Yeah, that, that's solid. Let's let's dig in a little there because. Um, I've been in conversations, I'm sure you have too, where, you know, some people in ministry, uh, because there, there, there is a natural sense of urgency to ministry because of the mission, right? I mean, uh, the hope of Christ, 
saves people, <laughs> and um, yeah. and there are a lot of broken people, right? So so we we in ministry kind of feel feel the weight to some degree that you know there are a lot of people that that are broken. And, and Christ can bring healing and wholeness into their lives. And so there's this natural sense of urgency. So how in ministry, and, I, and you know, I've, I've had pastors who are like, hey, I'll have time to sleep when, you know, I'm hanging out with Jesus, you know, in eternity, you know, post-resurrection. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, those type of comments, like now I'm, I've just got to be all in because the mission is just so big and so great. And, and so they, they're, they're all amped up on that. And, and then, as you've said, they create a culture within a church where it's all— Focused on, hey, you know, this is the big mission, which is super important. But, but how do you how do you kind of balance that in ministry? Because, you know, there's there's good things about both being really engaged in the mission, but then also understanding this idea of rest. Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing is I would say that they they go together or they don't go very far at all. You know, and that's so good. you know. Um, the opposite, I heard, I heard somebody recently say that the opposite of a contemplative life isn't an active life. It's a reactive life, mm. meaning if you look at the life of Jesus, you know, this incredible balance where he oscillates back and forth between silence, solitude, quiet, rest, Sabbath, early morning prayer hours, and then intense activity, mission, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, standing up against corruption. And it's this both and, and he's and he's constantly kind of oscillates back and forth between withdrawal to rest, hear the Father's voice, attend to his soul before God in the Garden of Gethsemane or whatever, and then re-engagement with the needs of the world. And if all you have is the engagement, you know, then your life actually, you think it's an active life. It becomes a reactive life. You begin to just react to all the stimuli and needs and noise and text messages and this need and that urge, you know. Right. And so you, you have to have this underlying base that Jesus had of rhythms of rest, renewal, prayer, quiet, contemplation in order to live an active life in the kingdom. Otherwise, you just burn out. I mean, the, like the, it's, this is not rocket science. The people that live, go, 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 90 per, miles per hour, do not last in ministry. Mm -hmm. And even if they you know, somehow manage to not have an affair or whatever, they're not effective long term. You like, there's, just, there's just no question. Like, I think the data is in. I don't think that's an opinion thing. I mean, one of the things that's been really sobering to me over the last five or ten years is to see so many celebrity pastors fall who had perfectly orthodox theology, mm. and it wasn't like they had an affair or they, you know, stole money or some right. of the more classic tropes. It was frankly just people that were workaholics, ego-driven, and were so emotionally unhealthy and burned out that they did not seem like compassionate, present, joyful, loving people. They just got sucked up into the hurry and the busyness, and many of them were incredibly successful and had a huge impact. And then they crashed and burned in front of everybody. A mentor of mine said to me recently, if the enemy, we were just attempting to discern what are the enemy's stratagem against me at this season of my ministry. And he, he had this great line. He said, you know, if the enemy can't under-promote you, he'll over-promote you faster than your rhythms of grace can sustain. Meaning if he can't quiet your voice and suppress you or knock you out through illness or, you know, unemployment or whatever the thing is, 
then he'll go the opposite direction and he'll overpromote you. More opportunities, more people following you, more influence, more invitations, more success at church, whatever the thing is, faster than you actually have the the humility, the character, the, the wisdom, and the, the rhythms of grace, meaning just like a rule of life, uh, a set of contemplative practices and prayer and Sabbath and restfulness and sleep patterns and healthy exercise, just a healthy like way of life before God that can sustain a life, you know? And the ironic thing that I've had to learn this lesson the hard way is actually I think the more leadership and ministry responsibility that is put on you, this is so counterintuitive, I actually think the more you have to rest and spend time focusing on your interior life with God, which is exactly the opposite of what most leaders do. And that is why so many of them crash and burn. And then they crash and burn in front of even more people. And the fallout is even greater, whether it be a massive celebrity, you know, New York Times page thing, or just, you know, your local house church imploded, or anything in between. Yeah, no, that that's Assad. Now, John Mark, as we consider ministry and, and, and serving as a pastor, and this idea that as we um, develop in ministry and as we kind of grow in ministry, as you've said, we need to like be even more cognizant and take more time to um, kind of unhurry ourselves and to find that Sabbath and that solitude and that simplicity. Sometimes in ministry, though, our leaders within our church, whether it's uh, elders or church board, um, sometimes their expectations are that we need to go, go, go. Um, yeah. How, how, and talking to ministry leaders right now, if, if they're in a, you know, a church, um, an average normal church, and they feel that sense of, hey, you know, we, we believe God called you to this church because, you know, this church needs um, revitalization. We need to turn this around. And so they're looking, you know, the leadership's looking at the pastor as the one who's going to really, really push. How can they have that conversation John Mark, with their leadership, or, or where some, you know, some guiding principles or thoughts in in trying to work and navigate through that. Oh yeah, I love that question. I mean, I think three steps. The first step is you you need to figure out if those expectations are actually. Um, legitimate expectations from your church and the other leaders in your church, staff, elders, board, whatever, or if they are self-imposed inner emotional expectations mm. that might be rooted in like a, a weird relationship with your dad or your mom where like you were never good enough and never worked hard enough, or it might be work rooted in your Enneagram number or your personality or your psychosis or failure at a past church or a previous experience that wounded you, be it a major wound or a minor wound, often we carry around a lot of false expectations from other people and that I think – and they could just be rooted in a, like a demonic lie that's taken root in your mind and you've given thought to it and allowed it to form your neural pathways into thinking everybody expects me to do this. They might not at all. Second thing you need to do is you need to clarify expectations. This is one of like the hardest things I've had to learn, but is key not just to leadership, just to relationships in general. Even if you're not a leader, if you just want to have a relationship with your spouse or your kid or your buddy, is to clarify expectations. So much of conflict in churches and in leadership teams and in relationships all comes back to a root of unmet expectations. 
Pete Scazzaro has done some of the best work around this. If you're not familiar, listen to his podcast or read his Emotionally Healthy Leader book where he talks about how expectations must be you know, reasonable, they must be spoken, they must be agreed upon, you know, and, and, and they must be conscience, conscious. And most of our expectations, they're not conscious. We don't even think about them. They're subconscious. They're not spoken. If they are spoken, they're not agreed upon and often they're not reasonable, you know? <laughs> right. And so we have to have that little those little four things that he talks about are fantastic. If I'm quoting them right from memory, maybe don't quote me. I think that's what the four are. And those things, so we have to have, you know, clarifying expectation conversations, whether that's with our board, staff, elders, church leaders, the church itself, whatever. And the final thing I would say is you have to decide, you know, you have to really get a clear handle regardless of what kind of church you're in or what size or what your role there is and what, you know, the job of the church is. I, I had this quote come to mind. I, I, I read this to our elders and our pastors yesterday. And so it was just right here on my laptop. So I pulled it up. Can I, is it cool if I read a Henry Nouwen quote? Am I allowed to yes, yeah. read a Catholic on church leaders? Yeah, for sure. Thing? Yes. I don't know. If, is, is Nouwen really count as a Catholic? I don't know. <laughs> he's, you know, he's transcended the categories. Um, in his Way of the Heart book, which is a short little book, it's uh, it's one of those kind of every pastor should read it at some point. He has this this paragraph, and I just want to read it to you. I'm not even going to read it to you really fast because it's so good. I've actually said this. I've quoted this to our church before. I requoted it to our leaders yesterday. It's really good. He writes this, speaking about uh, priests or pastors or spiritual leaders in a local congregation. So his language is a little more Catholic than what I would use, but he's so good. He writes this, our task is the opposite of distraction. Our task is to help people concentrate on the real but often hidden event of God's active presence in their lives. Hence, the question that must guide all organizing activity in a parish, or for us, we just say, in our, all the stuff we do in a church, is not how to keep people busy, but how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. Mm. Calling people together, therefore, meaning kind of church work, means calling them away from the fragmenting and distracting wordiness of the dark world so to that silence in which they can discover themselves, each other, and God. Thus, organizing, and he means church leadership, can be seen as the creation of a space where communion becomes possible and community can develop. And wow. I just love that. I mean, we literally have changed how we do our gatherings. We incorporate moments of silence now weekly into our gatherings. And we're not like high church Anglicans or whatever. This is very lowbrow Portland, you know, 20 something hipster kind of people. <laughs> but, you know, silence and psalm reading out loud together and slowing down and asking everybody to put their phone away. And we like ask people to bring real Bibles to church and notepads to take notes on. And we're building a new building right now. And we had a meeting a couple of days ago and we'll see if it works out about toying with the idea of like, you know, when you go to a Muslim mosque and there are cubbies there to put your shoes in because you don't wear shoes and it's a sacred space, part of that tradition. So we thought about like cubbies for iPhones, like a coat check system or something where you come in and there's like a wall where everybody drops off their devices wow. to come into church to just slow. So one of the main things that we're trying to do through the Sunday gathering is literally show people this is how you slow down, breathe, put away your phone, 
come to the quiet and attend to God's presence and to hear his voice and be present to his love and the people around you. And so a lot of people, a lot of pastors, I don't think they think of that as their main job. I think that's really my main job and that all of the activity and evangelism and justice and all of that has to grow out of this place of restful contemplative presence before God. That's the byproduct, not the other way. That's cart before the horse. Yeah, that's powerful. And you mentioned this idea of hurry sickness. Um, yeah, that that's kind of kind of you know what a lot of people are experiencing. And and I can see just as you're talking and, and praying and, and God's guiding you and your leadership to kind of change how you guys are approaching ministry as a whole, which is awesome, right? Um, yeah. You know how how does that relate to you creating a um, a space for people who are wrestling with hurry sickness and and what exactly do you mean by that hurry sickness? Yeah, well, hurry sickness isn't my language. That was originally coined by Meyer Friedman back in the fifties, who mm. was a doctor. He was the cardiologist, as I understand it, who first discovered the link between cardiovascular heart disease and people that are type A, chronically stressed, workaholic kind of people. So he was the first one to realize that, oh, if you're that kind of go, 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 type A, work a thousand hours, angry all the time, stressed out all the time, you're way more at risk for heart disease. And he called it hurry sickness and identified it as a major problem in the US in the 1950s. Wow. And so that language has officially entered psych, you know, psychiatric and psychological diagnosis now, and psychologists call it hurry sickness. And they basically mean just that chronic state of inner and external kind of rushing. You always feel like you have too much to do. And that's, that's, that's the essence of hurry. It's not you have a lot to do and that you're – it's not even that you're busy. It's too much to do. So there's, you know, there's, there's a healthy kind of busyness that just means your life is full. You're, you're, you're doing a lot. Your life is generative. You're giving your life away. By that definition, Jesus was most definitely busy. But then there's what Ron Wolheiser calls pathological busyness or what I would just call hurry. And the essence of that is – which is the toxic and more common kind where you have too much to do. And so the only way to attempt to cram it all in is to speed up your mind and speed up your body and speed up your relationships and your interactions with people to this insane, frenetic, fast pace, which is at that point incompatible. It cuts you off from your capacity to be loving and joyful and at peace, and therefore it cuts off your ability to be present to God who is with you and to live a spiritual life in the kingdom. And that's that pathological busyness, that hurry, that's the thing that is making all of us sick at an emotional level, at a mental level, at a relational level, and at a spiritual level. And I think a big part of the pastor's job is to help people in a culture where hurry sickness in the norm uh, is the norm. Again, it's not to get them more hurried and to add more busyness on top of their already over busy life. It's to teach them to slow down. So it's so interesting. Like you know, like all churches, we have like a welcome to the church kind of thing. We do a class that we do. It's mm-hmm. three weeks long. We do it three times a year. And I used to begin, I always do the first kind of opening thing. I used to begin with this like big vision pitch of the kingdom and like in Portland as it is in heaven, as it is in heaven, like that was our line. And we want to see the kingdom of God come. We want to see the city change. I used like this big aspirational vision pitch. But quickly what I realized, you know, or maybe not quickly, actually I was slow to realize Mm -hmm. this, is that our people, A, are just too busy to have any life with God whatsoever, much less to like 
practice hospitality in their neighborhood or do justice. They're just incredibly busy, exhausted, and distracted. And these are like well-meaning, intelligent, successful, middle-class urban people. And um, not all of them, but many of them. And so now I've like, we've literally reworked the whole thing. We now start with Matthew 11 and Jesus' invitation to take up the easy yoke, those that are tired and weary. And I say, hey, you know, you're going to hear a lot of different things about our church and all the different things that we do. And you're going to hear us asking you to do some things like volunteer and kids ministry or tithe and come to church and be in a community, some of these things. But the main thing that I want you to hear is that we're not calling you to addition. We're calling you to subtraction. We're not calling you to add more church activities and religious stuff on top of your already over-busy, stressed-out, distracted life. We're actually calling you to slow down and simplify your life around following Jesus in community and discovering the rich joy and peace and life that comes from that. And so everything we do is going to be geared at helping you slow down to actually live the way of Jesus, not adding more stuff on top. So I think that's the kind of church culture, right or wrong, that we really, our conviction is that we, at least for us, if not right. for everybody, we really want to cultivate. Well, let's uh, dig in a bit more there because I'd love to hear more about how you are uh, creating that space, uh, you know, practical things that you're doing. I mean, that's obviously a, a great one and just how you're, you know, launching into introducing people to your church, you know, those who are kind of making that commitment to learn more and in that uh, uh, kind of newcomers class and that sort of thing. But but what are some other things that you have had to choose to do differently and how are they contributing to creating this this culture? Yeah, well, I mean, we frankly don't do a lot as a church. We've really cut down on programs, activities, events, and really just stripped it down to you know, in our model, we have Sunday gatherings, and then we have neighborhood-based discipleship communities that are of equal value and weight in our model of church. And we really do very little outside of those two things. And um, what we realized is that with millennials in particular, and then especially in the digital age, that the the classic kind of spiritual disciplines are have been almost obliterated by the iPhone, busyness, noise, secularism, and the millennial and Gen Z kind of cultural moment. That um, even some of the like very bare minimum kind of truncated evangelical disciplines of like read your Bible and pray in the morning and go to church, even those have been massively, if not destroyed, cut way down on, you know? Mm -hmm. And the average American, you know, the average churchgoer is like one time a month or something like that. So what we've, we've kind of like gone all the way back to point zero and kind of restarted. We're three years in now to a four year long kind of ongoing series where we, we oscillate back and forth on Sundays between teaching the Bible and this series where we're teaching on practices or spiritual disciplines like biblical theology, whether it's Sabbath or silence and solitude or fasting or community or simplicity. We're teaching on these practices, teaching a biblical theology of these practices, and then teaching like how to actually do them on a day-by-day -day basis. And, uh, and then we're writing up practices for our communities for them to learn and figure out how to do and realizing, man, we actually have to teach people practices and we're really prioritizing practices of rest and quiet of like what Richard Foster called practices of abstinence where you abstain, you know what I mean? Rather than practices of engagement because we have urban people. They're super busy with their careers. Most of them are already really engaged doing lots of things, you know? Right. 
And then the last thing is right now we're working on – it's like a multi-year project for our church. We're teaching on it right now. But we're working on on creating a rule of life for our church that is basically a set of practices that, which will include things like Sabbath and some digital kind of stuff that really create a more restful, easy yoke kind of life experience that basically, you know, once we get it all done in a year or so, to commit to our church will be – basically to commit to live by this rule of life and trying to form like a core community at the center of our church that's living into a, a rule of life that prioritizes everything from hospitality for neighbors and justice to Sabbath and morning prayer and restful quiet. Well, I love that. I, I love that. I, I look forward to to seeing that. Was that something you'll, you'll publish and, and make available so obviously people can see what what that rule of life looks like? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. It'll all be on our website and our podcast. And then, you know, we're, we're collaborating with some other churches that we're friends with to see if we can kind of come up with one together that's you know, not just like a Bridgetown rule of life, but right. that a number of us to commit to, um, and specifically trying that are in similar cultural contexts. And I, you know, so that other churches are welcome to borrow it, use it, how, adapt it however the heck they want. I, I really think that a kind of neo-monasticism is the future of the church in the West, yeah. something that really prioritizes community, people eating around tables together, spiritual disciplines, Sabbath, contemplative practices of prayer and hospitality as the primary way people do evangelism. I, I really think whatever the future is, I think it's 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 that kind of a neo-monastic thing. So rule of life for us is really a, a, a key thing. That's so good. That's so good, brother. We're about to wrap up, and we're going to have Great. links to, to your book and to, to the different books that we've kind of mentioned and, and resources that, that you've shared. But before we wrap up, I, I'm just wondering, is there, is there anything as, again, you know, you're speaking to your colleagues, brothers and sisters who are serving in ministry. Is there anything else that maybe hasn't been said that you would, you would really like to share with, with our listeners uh, b- before we close down? You know, I just I, I think of the Garden of Eden comes to mind in Genesis chapter three, and and one way of reading that story and the temptation or original sin, whatever you want to call it, is the temptation to transgress your limitations, to step outside of the sphere that God had set before Adam and Eve in the garden, which had beautiful boundaries to it, and I think of Paul's line to the Corinthians, you know, I won't boast behind. I won't I won't boast beyond my sphere, you know, like of responsibility. He had this awareness of this is what God's called me to do and no more. I'm not going to go beyond that. I'm not going to do more than what God's asked me to do. And, and I, I think that there's a real temptation, again, in ministry or church leadership where it's so easy to do good things for bad th- reasons or the right things for the wrong reasons, you know. Right. It's so easy to let the enemy tempt us. Not to have an affair or become a heretic or deny the divinity of Christ, but to be out another night, to answer another email, to mm-hmm. say yes to another meeting that we actually should not take, to add another service when actually we can't sustain that, you know, whatever the thing is, to buy another building when really that's not the smart move or the wise move or the calm move or whatever. 
like the temptation is there in all of that, right in the middle of church life. We have to have quiet and restful moments to contemplate and really cultivate discernment before God so that we don't become reactive rather than active. Active is good. Reactive is bad. So we don't just become reactive and get sucked into this temptation to go beyond our limitations, to go beyond. This is the the primal human temptation, to go beyond the life, the community, the sphere, the calling that God has, the, the gifting, the emotional capacity, the stage of life if we have little kids that God actually has for us, the temptation is to go beyond it and get sucked into so many other things. And so I guess my encouragement would be to to cultivate, to those of you leaders listening, you men and women, to cultivate a healthy sense of acceptance and even gratitude and delight in whatever your limitations are, whatever the sphere of service that God has assigned to you is, whatever community or role or time or stage of life, if you have kids or no kids, or you're single or you're married or you're well or you're sick, whatever those limitations are, just to really, and I talk a lot about that in my book, there's more examples, but to really cultivate a healthy sense of gratitude and delight and not try to transgress those limitations before God. It's beautiful, John Mark. And I really I, wanna encourage our listeners um, to check out the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, absolutely fantastic, and I think a, a much-needed um, reminder in the world in which we live, um, whether, whether we're in ministry or not. I mean, this is something that, uh, as you've shared, um, from a ministry perspective, is super important because of, of the temptations to just go, go, go. But then um, what an opportunity, as, as, um, as you are kind of sharing and modeling, of how we as, as ministry leaders can help our people pull back and step into a, a much more balanced and healthy life with Christ. So, man, certainly appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Love it. We could talk for, for hours on this topic alone <laughs> um, easily, but, uh, but thank but you for we'll making em- the time. We'll embrace our limits, and you bet. Thanks for having me on. It's such an honor. Love to all of you listening, my fellow church leaders, so much with a lot of humility. Keep up the good work. Awesome. God bless you, my friend. Yep. Thanks, mate. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.